You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, Marissa. Hi there. And hello, listeners, and welcome to a special episode of the Common Descent Podcast. It's Croc Month. Woo! All throughout the month of June, we are (laughs) celebrating all things crocodilians. And this is a special episode where we are talking about croc conservation with our special guest, croc specialist, Dr. Marissa Tellez. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to talk croc. Agreed. We are very, Will is very excited. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we get into the details of the science and the animals and the conservation, if you would please introduce yourself for our listeners. My name is Dr. Marissa Tejas, and I am the co-founder as well as the executive director of the Crocodile Research Coalition. We are a non-profit, a wildlife and scientific non-profit based in Southern Belize. And our focus is crocodiles, but we take a more holistic approach when it comes to conservation. So not only do we focus on crocodiles, we do just focus on anything else that is in crocodilian habitat, because as we know, everything has a connection to each other. So we study manatee, jaguars, snakes, stingrays, you name it. If it's in crocodilian habitat, we want to know about it. But of course, our focus are the crocodiles. (laughs) <laughs> that's so awesome. I didn't know all the rest of that. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a really cool organization. And and what a one. So you are actually coming to us right now from Belize. Yes, I am in Belize right now. I'm in southern Belize. So the Placencia Peninsula. Also, we have the lovely Placencia Lagoon. So we are on the coast in southern Belize. So it's great because it does feel like a little bit of an island. And given the situation where we're at, We have both species of crocodilians here in Belize, just around the Placencia Lagoon. So it's great. I get to study both species as well as the hybrids. Ooh, nice. So which species are those? So our species that we have here in Belize, we have the American crocodile. And this crocodile has one of the widest range, one of the widest geographical ranges of crocodilians throughout the world. You can find it from the southern tip of Florida all the way down to South America, to Venezuela. You can find it in some of the islands along the Caribbean. And then you also have the American crocodile on the Pacific coast. So our species of American crocodile, or our population of American crocodile, we just received some genetic information we might have a new subspecies here in Belize because it's so isolated. So it's actually really exciting for us right now. And then the other species of crocodile we have is the Morelets crocodile. This is more of your freshwater species that you can find in southern Mexico, Guatemala, as well as Belize. Cool. And you mentioned that they hybridize? Yes. So the American and the Morelets crocodile, given previous scientific publications, they have been hybridizing for at least a thousand generations in this particular area. So one thing that is interesting is now with some other genetic information that we are receiving from some of our studies, the majority of crocodiles here in Belize, they are hybrids. And so we have pure American crocodiles on the islands in Belize and in some isolated populations, like one or two populations in southern Belize. And then the Morelets crocodile, 
We just have a few pure more Let's Crocodile populations along the western border with Guatemala. Also very isolated, but the rest of the population is, they're, they're hybrids. So one question we have, especially with conservationists as scientists, oh, we got to keep the pure populations, but what if we are actually seeing the evolution of a new species? We do mm -hmm. know that species have arisen through hybridization. So sure, right now it's just, okay, we've got the Morlets, we've got the American, oh my gosh, you know, we're going to lose one of the species because of hybridization, but maybe this is just nature taking its course. And millions of years from now, you're going to have some scientists that are going to look back at this time and be like, oh, that's when the new species, you know, Crocodilus belizeani was, <laughs> was in a sense evolving for the American and the Morlets crocodile. So that's just an interesting take that we've been taking here at the CRC is, you know, do we actually step in? Because again, it's possible we're just seeing evolution actually taking place right now. That's yeah. I'm I'm already geeking out. Uh because that <laughs> that immediately made me think of uh uh the situation with Cuban crocodiles and American crocodiles also hybridizing, but in that case, they're threatening the Cuban crocodiles. Because of because they are over breeding, they're over hybridizing and getting rid of that phenotype. Okay, this is super exciting. This kind of goes into your world with paleontology, right? All right. So last year, I was in Dominican Republic conducting American crocodile studies, and there hadn't been any that they have been conducting studies, basic nest studies, basic eye shine studies of the American crocodile in Lago Enriquillo in Dominican Republic. But I went in with a master's student and we were looking, we were conducting diet studies. We were trying to capture to do morphology, look at parasites, yada, yada, yada. We're, we're trying to expand the research, um, collaborating with the government and some other NGOs there. And I went to the museum and met up with the, the curator of herpetology and he's been dabbling into paleontology. And they've been going to these caves and finding these fossils. They found uh, a, an extinct species of gharial in a cave Ooh. in Dominican Republic. And then they, they started to find fossils of Crocodilus rhombifer, also known as the Cuban crocodile. Wait a minute, this is interesting. So long story short, the herpetologist and I started talking about what if, what if the American crocodile is in a sense the superior species, the superior competitor, and what if rhombifer was found throughout the Caribbean islands, but the American crocodile being the superior competitor in a sense pushed rhombifer out, or possibly there was some type of hybridization. So for all we know, the American Crocs and Dominican Republic might have some genes of rhombifer illustrating that there was a local population that went extinct possibly through hybridization. And then I spoke with some of my Cuban colleagues and they had started to hypothesize as well that again, the American crocodile, technically the American crocodile is considered one of the most timid and shy species, despite its size of sometimes getting to 18 feet. It is a mm -hmm. relatively timid and shy species and maybe timid and shy to humans, but maybe not so to other crocodiles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Again, we might be seen with the Cuban crocodile or Crocodilus rhombifer in Cuba that you have the superior American crocodile 
that seems possibly more adaptive when it comes to climate change and urbanization. So in a sense, they are able to survive with all these climatic changes and anthropogenic disturbances where the Cuban crocodile might not be doing so well. And so again, the American crocodile is in a sense taking over, but then also with that, you also have the hybridization of the two species. So might not end up seeing the evolution of a new species, but in a sense, one species wiping out another species through hybridization. And that those fossils might indicate that this that Cuba is not the first time this has happened between these two species. Exactly. I believe it did, it was a published paper that they found, I believe, a rhombifer skull in the Bahamas as well, not too mm-hmm, long ago. Mm-hmm. So rhombifer, for all we know, we might find some fossils in what is now Haiti. I mean, that's still part of Hispaniola. But again, some of the other Caribbean isles. And so it's just kind of, again, illustrating that maybe one of the reasons that this particular crocodile species has such a wide range is that it's just a superior competitor and can be able to adapt to various different habitats. Yeah, that's really wow. interesting. It's it's so interesting for me to think about just the, the idea of crocodilian conservation as a topic, because I think it's less intuitive for me than with a lot of other animals to think of crocodilians as animals that need protection. Right, right. (laughs) They're so big, they're so powerful, they're so, they seem so unflappable that it's, it's odd to think of them as animals that can be threatened and can struggle with the same sort of issues that a lot of other species do. It's interesting because when uh, there's been a lot of push in saving the crocodiles because of climate change, but one crocodilian specialist a couple years ago came out with a really interesting article talking about how throughout geological time, there have been times where Earth has definitely been hotter than what we're experiencing now or what we may mm-hmm. be experiencing in a couple years. Yet crocodilians, as well as sea turtles, they were able to adapt So, you know, utilizing the whole idea, especially for grant writing or whatever, like, oh my gosh, climate change may threaten, you know, crocodilian survival or even sea turtle survival. That might not be true because they were able to survive again in these hotter climates um, during other periods in the past. So that might not be the biggest threat. And Mm -hmm. what I think is the biggest threat, which is technically is the biggest threat to a lot of different wildlife species, it's humans. Um, And crocodilians, we almost wiped them out in the mid 1900s. And so throughout time with indigenous cultures, yes, they did utilize crocodiles as a source of protein, um, maybe a way to connect to the gods, but it it was done in a way that it was sustainable. Yes. And let's, um, so let me kind of bring the example of Belize in regards of we went from respect to almost causing the extinction. So up to the late 1800s, when you looked at every body of water here in Belize, and if you had a flashlight or a torch and you just shined across the lagoon or any source of water, it would be a sea of red eyes because there was just crocodiles everywhere. And we see this in old reports. There were so many crocodiles that there's actually an old report from 1890 from a British general that said that they used to just shoot the crocodiles just for fun, just for sport, you yeah. know, because 
killing a couple, I mean, there's just so many, you're not going to kill them all. The numbers seemed untouchable. Yeah, they just seemed untouchable. And, you know, here comes World War One, World War Two, where crocodilian skin was being utilized for boots, in a sense, for armor. And we know, even going back to the Roman era, that the military was utilizing crocodilian, crocodilian skin as some type of armor, just because of how tough it is. And again, also for the for the osteoderms, the bony plates mm. that are on the backs of crocodiles. Which is very sad from like protecting the animal standpoint, but also that's really awesome that your skin is so tough that the military is like, hey, could could we could we use that? <laughs> yeah. They're like, hey, this is oh. this is good protection right here. <laughs> so we have World War One, you know, and you do see this this heightened hunting of crocodilians throughout the world for their skin for the military. And then World War II comes, and then again you start seeing this increase of crocodilians being hunted for their skin for the military. But you know, it was it it wasn't in a in a number that was going to wipe out a species. And then World War II ends, the, the war to end all wars. And those businesses that were creating the suits for the military or utilizing crocodilian skin for the military, they're thinking, oh my gosh, we're out of business. The war to end all wars has ended our business. What are we going to do to continue getting money? Ah, let's make crocodilian skin fashionable. Yep. And so now you have the end of the 1940s, early 1950s, and within a decade, humans almost wiped crocodilians off the face of this earth just for the fashion industry. With that, too is that you had these hunters that were going in into remote areas. You had these indigenous cultures that there was a respect for these animals. No, 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 no. You can't hunt our, our crocodiles. That's, that's our grandfather. There was an ancestral mm -hmm, tie. Mm -hmm. But you had, um, through colonization, where there was this removal of indigenous people or, or rural people from their connection, not just to crocodiles, but also just to nature. But then also, oh, you, you think that's your grandfather? Oh, actually, that's a monstrous animal that just wants to devour you. And just constantly inputting this into the mindset of the rural communities, they start thinking, oh, wait, maybe they're right. Maybe this animal wants to eat us. So yeah. when you start putting a negative perception on an animal, on a plant, or making it seem like, no, 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 it's not worth anything. That makes it easier to exploit the resource. See, I'm really doing you a favor by getting this out of here. Exactly. Let me do that favor for you. And we're going to keep that community safe. And that, so not only you did you have this disconnect or lack of respect towards nature from people, you know, outside of an area or mm -hmm. foreigners, the, the colonists, now you started to create that disconnect with the world people that for generations, centuries did have this connection. And then, of course, you know, modernization and stuff like that. Oh, no, we don't need nature. So this disconnect, disconnect, disconnect. So 50s through late 70s, at least here in Belize, wildlife was not to be respected. Wildlife was to be exploited. You know, mm -hmm. it was all about making money. But the people of Belize were not the ones getting the money. It was always going to an outside source. 
And so again, you just had this big disconnect. Finally, in 1981, when Belize gained its independence, the people of Belize gained control of the wildlife and their natural resources. And that's when you started to see this increase within the crocodile population here in Belize. And it was about the 1970s, even worldwide, people started to protect crocodiles because they started to understand the cultural connection and also the ecological importance. There's mm-hmm. a perfect example with Louisiana. As they started to hunt the alligators and as the number of the alligators start to decrease, where's the deer? Where's mm-hmm. the nutria? You know, where's even the fish? The fish population is not as big as anymore because they started to see the importance of the American alligator as this ecological landscaper that the nest of the alligators, the tunnels of the alligators were being utilized by other animals. And since there was no more alligators to kind of change the vegetation or to add nutrients to a local pond, that had a negative domino effect on the other wildlife. So this particular example, other people started to see that around the world. And that's where people started to think we got to protect the crocodiles. And so here in Belize, we started to see this increase of the crocodile population. And with that, we, of course, started to see negative interactions between humans and crocodiles because you have generations where they lost that education of learning the do of knowing the do's and don'ts of yeah. how to live alongside wildlife. Uh, no longer crockwise as the exactly no longer crockwise, and you see, you still see that around the world, and mm-hmm. so that's something the Crocodile Research Coalition. Yes, we do tons of research, but I think what's even more important is the education. It's trying to revive the education and the knowledge that was lost due to colonialism, due to the overhunting of the animals. Due to modernization even, right? Because, mm-hmm. oh, nature, that's not cool. Well, yeah. The nature is something that happens on documentaries or on vacation. That's Nature's not where I live. Well, and this is, I think, a, a theme that comes up a lot with conservation. And this comes up, this episode won't have come out yet when this episode <laughs> comes out, but we have recorded it already. This is something that comes up in our snake conservation discussion as well, that One of the most important considerations when you're talking about the health of species and the endangerment of species isn't only how people directly treat those animals, but just how people think about those animals. Just the perception. Either not understanding them and thus not understanding how to live alongside them or having those negative perceptions, like you said, which of course comes up. That comes up with snakes. It comes up with sharks. It comes up with we talked about vultures in a recent episode. When when there is a common perception among people that this is an animal that is dangerous or monstrous or bad or unworthy of respect for whatever reason, just that mindset being out there can be such a powerful and damaging impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. So every day the CRC has to fight against these particular perceptions, even I mean, it it always amazes me when people are like, oh my God, I don't like crocodiles. Oh, I hate crocodiles. Have you ever seen one in the wilds? No. Have you seen one at a zoo? No. I'm like, how can you hate Mm -hmm. an animal that you have never had any interaction with? It just, 
I never understood that. But again, it's education because it's what you see on the movies, documentaries, you know, just how the popular news media makes the, the crocodiles look, you know, how they're perceived, not just this constantly, it's always this negative perception about crocodiles that really starts impounding the subconscious. And so that's where with the CRC, I'm like, we have to completely counteract that. So if you actually go on our social media and see any of our posts with our captive animals, we have two crocodiles in under our human care or permanent care right now. And then any of the crocodiles that we have rehabbed or any of our neighborhood crocodiles, none of them are called bone crusher yeah, yeah. <laughs> or jaws because that's just feeding that negative subconscious that we have to be afraid of these animals and we can't coexist. Yes. So, you know, our, our two captive crocs is Gilly and Eamon. And it's, mm. I was watching Game of Thrones when we received these animals. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. So perfect. like Eamon, he's blind. He's blind because someone got a machete and chopped at his head. And it was because Aww. of the misguided beliefs and false facts about crocodiles. And so Maester Eamon and Gilly is named after there. We had, he had a partner named Sam. And so Gilly and Sam. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Unfortunately, yeah. when we received Sam, she was very sick. And so she passed away this past December. So we just have Gilly now. Oh. But again, we have Eamon and Gilly. And then we have had um, Burrito, a little three foot croc <laughs> that um, someone was feeding. We have Tortilla. That was another croc. And so it was named Tortilla because someone was feeding a tortilla. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all these names that are a little bit more fun and gentle. And then anytime yes. we do videos, it's not like this hardcore, you know, again, like Jaws or heavy metal or like, oh my gosh, something's going to happen and it's scary. It's fun. It's, you know, it's very lighthearted and stuff because it's feeding into that subconscious like, oh, I want to, this animal's not that bad. Yeah, it's just an animal. Yeah, it's just an animal. And so we're doing as much as we can to counteract that. To even with our community, we have a couple of neighborhood crocs. And when we first came here, or I'm sorry, when I first came here to Placencia, I remember, oh, okay, you're the croc girl. Um, there's a croc in front of my in front of my house on the lagoon. I'm like, please remove it. Okay. What is it doing? It's swimming. Okay, is it swimming towards you? No, it's swimming away. Well, that that's what it's supposed to do. It's it's supposed mm-hmm. to it's supposed to swim away. That's good. Clap, you know, applaud that crocodile for being, you know, a crocodile here in Belize. Because again, our crocodiles are pretty timid and shy. But again, it was this perception, and so it was constant education. I don't believe just going into school once every few years, or even once every year. All the schools around here, they see us probably five times a year, and that even includes nice. some community events. And then we're constantly posting on social media. We're going through, we're going to all the community events so that people see us and they see that we're part of the community and they're a little bit more open to talk to us. And they understand that, yes, we are about crocodile conservation, but we're also about our community. Yeah. So it's building those ties and the relationships with the community because at the end of the day, conservation is not just about 
wildlife. It is about people. If we yes. want to ensure the long-term success of any conservation program, we need the support of the people. We need the involvement of the people. The people need to be educated. And so that's why we have all these various programs for the community to be involved with the research. I, I see CRC, we're just a catalyst. Um, what is going to ensure long-term conservation and coexistence of our crocodiles, it's the community. It's the people. Yeah. So building our community science program, we have a wildlife youth program, volunteers coming out with us all the time, you know, and again, just doing whatever we can to build relationship. So next Tuesday, we're, we have a booth in front of the police station and we're going to have, it's going to be croc, croc <laughs> everyone goes and does their best bellow yeah <laughs> but you know people can come by the booth and the policemen are super excited you know and we're you know we're definitely going to have a little bit of a karaoke session but you know we always have these different ways of getting the community interested and and wanting to talk to us about why it's important uh, to coexist with crocodiles, and again, just how lucky we are to have these animals. Mm -hmm. yeah. Our crocodile species here in Belize, they almost went extinct like many other populations internationally. But here in Belize, they've rebounded pretty well, especially the Morlets crocodile. You don't see that in other Central American countries and even some of the Caribbean countries. And so we always stress to people, we should be proud, you know? We should be proud of the communities, of the government to getting our populations back because there's other places that they want crocodiles and they don't have them for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And also one thing I've learned over the years is, you know, people always talk about the importance of crocodiles, why they're so important for the environment, or maybe you can make money off of them. You know, for some people that just goes in one ear out the other. I don't care if they're important for the environment. I don't care if crocodile poop helps with the fish population and mm -hmm. the health of the lagoon. Yeah, I'm not a fish. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I don't care about that. But one thing that people care about, about is their culture, you know. Mm -hmm. So we have dug into old Maya texts. We have spoken with some of the Creole, the, the Garif. Garifuna communities here to try to dig up some of the old connections with crocodiles as well as other wildlife and just nature in general. Because when we do our research and we talk about how the Mayas, the Maya didn't fear, they revered crocodiles. And yeah. part of that is there is one creation story where the world sat on the back of a crocodile the crocodile was the guardian of the earth. And one day there was a sky monster that wanted to devour the earth. And the crocodile sacrificed himself in this big battle in the sky. And when the blood of the crocodile came to earth, people arose. So we, in a sense, are all part crocodile. Crocodiles are, awesome. <laughs> are our ancestors. So killing a crocodile is like killing our ancestor. That's, that's sacrilegious. Why would you want to do that? And some people don't know this, but again, this has been lost over time, you know, yeah. through, again, colonization and modernization. And additionally, crocodilians, they connected the heavens, the earth, and the underworld. The only other animal that did that was jaguars. So mm -hmm. that was another reason why the Maya felt that crocodiles were very important 
they were connected to the gods. So how could you harass? How could you kill something that was so precious in the eyes of the gods? And, and, and so we bring out a lot of these cultural aspects of, of the Maya when we do our education. And again, from the other um, ethnicities that you find here in Belize, we present this during our education because when people hear this, they're like, oh, well, this is crocodiles are part of our culture of Belize. You know, mm-hmm. people don't want to lose that. You know, imagine in the United States, something happened and the bald eagle went extinct. <gasps> Not yeah, only right. is that like <laughs> a knife to the heart in regards of conservation, but Americans would feel, oh my gosh, that's I've just lost a piece of me. Mm-hmm. And so that's well, one of the ways that we present our education. If we lose crocodiles, if we lose jaguar, we lose the harpy, we lose the fertilance, we lose the manatee, we lose the scarlet macaw. Not only do we just lose wildlife, but but we also lose a part of who we are because these animals are part of our culture. And so that's been a big message for us in regards of our education program. It's such an interesting concept. I think that so often when we talk about education in light of conservation, what we're aiming to do is to replace fear with understanding. Mm -hmm. And we're replacing, you know, myths with facts. But this approach of also replacing fear with pride. Yes. And with that connection, it makes me think of there was a project that I learned about. This is probably still going on, but many years ago in Los Angeles, where it was a group trying to protect mountain lions Mm -hmm. whose habitats had been all broken up by the highways and, and the roads. And one way that they started getting people interested in it is they started naming mountain lions per like section of the city or section of the region and go, yeah, this is your mountain lion. This is P23 or whatever the designations were. And people would get really excited of like, yeah, this is our mountain. This is the mountain lion that lives in my area. This is my neighbor. And having that sort of, whether it's an ancestral cultural connection or a new one that you're developing right here, it's really helpful to get people personally invested yes. and personally connected to well, it. It's like, I know they've named great whites in a similar way. And like some of them have Twitter pages that will oh, yeah, update with do. like, yeah, we just saw, you know, Shelly off the coast. of. So now, you know, here's the update for where, where, where Shelly is. Yep. And, yep. and yeah, it's, well, it makes me think of how I've heard this from multiple dog trainers that you don't train the dog. You train the owner, you know, you train the <laughs> human, you right. have to train them. This is, when you do this, you're sending your dog the wrong signal. You need to stop doing that. Right. If you want your dog to respond to you, you need to do it the same way every time. It's you that needs to be consistent. The dog will follow. <laughs> so the human is the one that you have to get to build the habits. The dog's going to be a dog, you know. Right. And that this is a similar thing. You need to educate and adjust the community that lives alongside the crocodiles because the crocodile is just going to be a crocodile. But if the people living around it can adjust their views and their feelings and their habits then everything else will follow. Yeah, and saying that, it reminds me of an incident that happened a couple years ago. Actually, it was during COVID. There was an eight-foot American crocodile that was poached in our Placencia Lagoon. And what broke my heart, so I kind of know all the the crocs in the lagoon, and there's Mm -hmm. a couple of the big guys, such as Charlie. He's about a 13, 14-foot American croc. 
he's probably 65 years old. The local fishermen know him, you know, and they always say, like, we have a, a healthy respect. He stays over there. We, we do our thing. And, you know, so there's a couple of them I just, I will never capture them. I'm like, respect, I'm not capturing you. <laughs> and this particular croc, I believe our next-gen croc group named him Poncho. And Poncho, it took a couple of years where we'd go on the boat, I knew the area and I had to say, hi, how's it going? And finally he got, he would let our boat get close. And I remember there were kids on this boat that had never seen a crocodile, despite them living on the Placencia Lagoon and them saying their parents had never seen a crocodile. And this eight foot male American crocodile let us get right next to him on the boat. I mean, the kids, their eyes, they were just, this is amazing. It was like seeing a dragon, you know? It was just mm-hmm. mind-blowing. They're just so excited. And the parents even were like, oh my gosh, the, the kids were telling me about seeing Poncho and da 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 Well, unfortunately, he, apparently someone put out some type of bait for one of our big fish in the area, a grouper, but unfortunately he grabbed on it. And one of the guys knew me, but he was pressured into killing this animal instead of calling me so that I could remove the hook that was stuck in Poncho's uh, throat. So anyways, it was like eight, nine o'clock in the morning and I get the police coming to my house and I'm thinking, I didn't do anything, you know, like it's just, it's a little creepy, you know? And, um, (laughs) And so they said, there's been a crocodile killed we need you to come to the the crime scene and i was like oh my gosh oh my gosh and you know they take me over there and i i see the croc the the police were actually looking oh my gosh this is a crazy story if i remember correctly the police were looking for a possible dead body in an area and they came across this these guys skinning the crocodile and they arrested them, and that's when they went to go get me to just kind of, they needed an expert to actually say, yes, this is a crocodile, and you know, what species? And it was like, oh gosh, this is an American crocodile. When I asked the guys, where did you get this animal? They told me, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Poncho. And literally three weeks ago is when we finally had that bond with the kids. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. So it starts spreading, uh, Facebook's really big here. So the story of a large crocodile in the northern part of the peninsula was killed. Instead of seeing these comments, which ever so often you see, oh, you know, I want to eat its tail. I want to make some boots out of it. Stuff like that. The community. Oh, my God. Please don't tell me it's Charlie. Please don't tell me it's Jeff. I'm going to go out on my boat and make sure it's not Jeff. And you see all these comments of people concerned for their neighborhood crocs. Yeah. People outraged that anyone that lived on our peninsula killed this eight-foot American crocodile. I mean, just the comments, I hope these guys go to jail. I hope, you know, people were being negative against the poachers, not the crocodile. And I was, I was shocked because if this yeah. happened even a decade ago, it would just absolutely... There would have been no comments. It wouldn't have even made Facebook. Well, Mm -hmm. yeah, Facebook was around then. then. (laughs) But I had, you know, had people messaging me. And one of the old time conservationists in the area, they said, Marissa, I know you're sad. 
but you have to look at the positive positive out of this. If this was done even four or five years ago, those policemen would have asked, oh, give me some of the meat. They wouldn't Mm -hmm. have arrested them. They wouldn't have cared. All the comments that you're seeing, people wouldn't have commented, or again, they would have commented negatively towards the crocodile. See the difference that you have made. CRC needs to keep doing what you're doing. You're making a positive impact for the wildlife and the community. And I I did. I, 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 Of course, it hurt that we lost yeah. Poncho, but at the same time, it was, I told the team, I'm like, you guys, it's working. I don't know what, you know what I mean? Whatever we're doing, it's working, you know? <laughs> right? And yeah. so we have really tried to expand that throughout the country. And we are seeing a positive change. But I think part of it is, again, we've done so much to really get the community invested. And obviously that's going to be hard in other parts of the country where we don't live, but that's where you find wildlife champions. And one of the areas here in Belize that has been so difficult in trying to create a croc-wise community or to build people's interest in crocodiles is Belize City. And Belize, Belize City is on the coast and it was created on wonderful crocodile habitat yeah. centuries ago. <laughs> <laughs> so there's just crocodiles everywhere. And it's been one of the cities or locations I have really wanted to hit hard. To me, I feel if I could create Belize City to be a crock-wise location, I just, it's like dropping the mic. Right. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm piecing out while I'm on a high kind of thing. <laughs> but it's been difficult for us because it's a three and a half hour drive. But we finally found a local tour guide, a, a local fisherman who one day saved a little crocodile and he contacted us because he didn't know how to release it. And then we just started talking with him. We took him out on one of our capture surveys. He's the croc man of Belize City now. And he has been <laughs> cool. helping us. And so it's been really fantastic because I, I see now, I'm like, okay, we can do this. Like if we can create Belize City to become a croc-wise location, we definitely can make Belize a crock-wise nation. And so that's been a big goal of the CRC. It's not going to happen by tomorrow. It's not going to happen by next week. But for me, my goal is right now anywhere from 20 to 30 years, Belize will be a crock-wise nation. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's really incredible. It's so it's so striking to hear a story where a bunch of people killed an eight-foot crocodile needlessly, and people saw it, and they thought the monsters in that equation were the people. Yep. That yeah. what a what an incredible turnaround. That that's always been one of the fascinating things to me about the, the, the global relationship with crocodilians, and that there are definitely areas where it is still the human crocodilian interactions are vastly negative. But to my knowledge, and so, and correct me if you know if I'm wrong, every species of crocodilian is protected correct i think yeah so and that's 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 always stood out to me where like sharks are still on a extremely uphill battle for being large predators with an incredibly negative public perception mm-hmm. and getting proper protection laws in place for sharks is is still being fought for and still in its you know infancy in many cases where like certain species are still 
not getting the protection they need or not getting the amount of protection they need while crocs have achieved that across the globe while they are still large potentially dangerous predators but there that there is this uh charisma to them and that people respond to them in a way uh that there that that sense of community pride and national pride you know australia is is proud of the fact that they have saltwater crocodile uh, florida is extremely proud of proud of their alligators that that has been a big part of it which is I don't know, it's just, it's always stood out to me about this group of animals among among those who have had major conservation efforts centered on them. It's a very unique situation, and it's uh, it's always hopeful when you can see it in practice and see it working. Yeah, people like crocs. They're mm-hmm. so cool. I'm actually giving a talk at the upcoming IUCN Species Survival Commission Crocodile Specialist Group meeting in July, the CSG, I'm giving a presentation about our education efforts here because people have seen what we've done. My colleagues have come down, various colleagues have come down, and they are quite shocked about the change of perception. In a sense, a short period of time. CRC, <laughs> we've only been around for six years. I I was working in Belize since 2008, but I did not establish the CRC until 2016. And so we are a fairly young organization, but we've done some amazing good and some amazing change. And that's not just because of me. I have an amazing team. I have an amazing team and we have fantastic volunteers. We have great support from the other big NGOs. So it's just been a really good group and we just the fire just kind of keeps going, you know, and obviously it's like when one good thing happens, it's like, you guys get that momentum, keep going, keep going. What's the next challenge? Okay, let's go. We got this. We got this, you know? And so, and I I also just kind of feel with the croc world, there is this amazing camaraderie amongst all of us scientists and conservationists. And I, there's just been so much help in creating programs, you know, uh, for example, In Argentina, they have a fantastic ranching program that has really assisted rural communities, and they have provided their expertise in various other parts of the world. You know, people don't seem to be, well, this is my program, and, you know, we want to be the golden child only. Everyone's so willing to share, and that's one thing I really do love about the crocodilian community. That's fantastic. Now, obviously, we love talking about educational efforts that we're on an educational podcast, of course, but I definitely want to make sure that during this conversation, we also get to talk about what it's like to work with the Crocs. So you and the CRC do a lot of educational programming. It sounds like uh, from what you were talking about, you do a lot of engaging with the community, looking into history, doing genetic work, but you also get to go out and study these crocs. So what does it look like to be a conservationist when you are out in the field with crocodiles? All of our work is at night, and that is when crocodiles are most active. They are nocturnal predators. Of course, you'll see them during the day here and there, but they are most active at night. So if you are scared of the dark, 
probably being a crocodilian biologist is not the best career choice for you, especially if you want to go out. I, for me, I never thought about it until about a month ago when these, these people came from England and they were like talking about like, oh, we're going to have to go hiking at night or we have to look at the crocodiles at night. And I'm just like, yeah, what? Oh, you're scared. I, I it's just, that's my job. Like I just, mm-hmm. I'm not scared of the dark. So in regards of creating right now a conservation and management action plan for crocodilians, what that looks like is we, well, I guess some of our work is during the day. So we'll go out during the day (laughs) and we will assess the habitat of the crocodiles. Um, Does this habitat look good? Is there any threats to habitat such as industry, such as pollution? And I can get into one of our research projects about pollution in a bit. And so we just kind of look at the future threats of these particular of this particular habitat. Then we will go out at night to do a nocturnal eye shine survey. So a nocturnal eye eye shine survey is we just look for the red eyes of the crocodiles. So the reflection of the red eye, it is known as the tapetum lucidum. And so we are just getting the reflection and we're counting crocodiles. Is this a yearling? Is this a juvenile, subadult, or adult? And that is actually understanding the abundance of crocodiles in a particular area. That is the most important information for conservation and management action plans. If you don't have time to do habitat and capture and nest surveys, or you don't have the funds, then just concentrate on the nocturnal eye shine surveys to get the idea of how many crocodiles are in a particular area. And one thing we really do look at when we're looking at the difference in size categories is how many juveniles compare to, let's say, subadults and adults. And we're kind of looking at this curve, you can say, in regards of the larger juveniles and subadults. If you have a high population, or if your population is mainly of larger juveniles and subadults, that's a stable population. That's that's a good population in that particular area. So that's what we're kind of aiming for. And then if you don't really get that particular, you know, stats per se, then we have to understand, okay, is this a population that is declining for some reason? Or is this a population that's possibly still in recovery from past exploitation? So after the nocturnal eye shine survey, is the fun part. <laughs> this is where <laughs> we conduct capture surveys. This is the wrestling crocodiles part of the yeah. research, I assume. Yes, this <laughs> is the part where, you know, you wrestle the crocodile. And so this part is, I, I love this part of the job because we go out pre-COVID, pre-COVID, we were right. going out from... 7 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. You're just out all night capturing crocodiles. And of course, all the information that we're gathering is to understand the health of the individual as well as the health of the population. So we take various morphometrics of the crocodile. <laughs> I have had so many colleagues come and they, all of them have made comments, Marissa, you guys take so much data. And it's, we have the crocodile 
why wouldn't I want to take all this data? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do it while you have it. Yeah. Uh, capturing a croc's not easy. It's like when the doctor's like, well, while I have you here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> while I have you here, let me collect this data. And so, you know, a lot of this data also assists with our, or it goes parallel with our genetic information that we are, that we are currently gathering as well. And besides the morphometric data that we are collecting, we also collect blood for genetics as well as to look for um, pollutants or to analyze for pollutants later on. And mm -hmm. we also take tissue samples for genetics and pollutant analysis. And then we also take a small piece of a toenail clipping for heavy metals. And in regards of the blood versus the tissue versus the nail clipping, heavy metals are absorbed at a different rate in various, par in various parts of the body. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. for example, you get a higher concentration of lead in toenail clippings as well as I believe mercury as well. So it just kind of provides you the most accurate concentration of mercury and lead that this animal is exposed to in the environment. And so that's why we take various samples for our heavy metal analysis. And once we take the, the samples, once we weigh the animal, once we sex the animal, then we'll just go ahead and release the animal back where we caught it. Now, one thing that I wanna stress is when people think of capturing these animals for research or just capturing crocodiles in general, Majority of people think of what they've seen with Steve Irwin, mm -hmm. Swamp Brothers, all that kind of stuff. That is for entertainment. <laughs> and one thing that I learned over the years, and it was really brought upon me through a colleague of mine, Sean Heflick, when he started to observe some of the crocodiles in captivity, is imagine someone kidnapping you. And then they go ahead and put a bag over your head and they're roughing you around. They're talking really loud. You know, there's this big chuckle in the background. It's, it's scary. You're thinking like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? But if it's okay, you've been captured, but after that, it's kind of, don't worry, don't, don't worry. And it's quiet and everything's done gentle. You're thinking, okay. This isn't that bad. There's less stress. We have seen, in a sense, using this quote unquote Zen method, <laughs> the crocodiles recover at a faster rate from capture. In the past, when I've just captured animals with, you know, other organizations or whatever, and you're loud and you're kind of just roughing them around or whatever. For the bigger crocodiles, they are building up so much lactic acid because of the stress. And there are times where, oh my God, it's, it's been 20 minutes and that animal hasn't moved. Did we kill it? But it's just so stressed out and it is just trying to metabolize out that lactic acid. Now, with this other method, with my team, not only are we quiet, but the other thing is to make things quick and efficient right before we do the capture survey, I at least need four people to get the job done efficiently. So it's you're, you're handling the crocodile, 
person A is handling the crocodile, person B is doing the measurements, person C is the one taking down all the notes, person D, you're getting everything ready for the weight, for the genetics, for the heavy metals. And so it's, there's no lag time. It just goes boom, 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 boom. People are quick. It's not like, wait, what are you doing? Wait, what am I supposed to do? It's nothing like that. It's just efficient. Mm -hmm. And so now, I mean, we just release the animal, they swim. Yeah. They're gone. And so I have spoken with a couple of grad potential grad students in the past because I would like to do some type of study that illustrates the the difference between a sense like the old way versus more of this Zen method. And again, it's it's about the welfare, right? In the past, old scientists, they didn't really care about the welfare of the animal, but we are more conscious about it now. So if we can improve the welfare of the animal, which means decreasing the stress, let's do it. And then the other thing is is that I've seen in the past is that while people are roughing up or talking so loud, the animal's like constantly moving because it's scared. And so it might hit itself against something on the boat. It might hurt a person doing it our way animals just don't move. They're just so relaxed. And so it's just, it's less stress for the animal. It's less stress for the team, which creates a better safety environment. So that's what we do for our captures. You know, it's, it's not as exciting, but again, this is not about entertainment and Mm -hmm. looking cool on social media. It is about getting the research to assist in the conservation of the animal while taking the welfare of the animal in mind. So that's pretty much our the overall with the capture surveys. And then after capture survey, if we have time, if it's nesting season in the area, we will do nesting. Uh, we will do a nest survey, which tends to take during the day. Our species, they do not approach us like what you might see with Australia or the American alligators where the mothers are super defensive. Yeah, yeah. Our animals, our species are pretty timid and shy and they're just kind of like, ah, you're going for my eggs. Well, sorry, kids. It's a real shame. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I'll make some more next year. It's fine. You know, so that's the, it's, Nest surveys are not too exciting for us. Not as fraught as <laughs> right, it's right. often made to seem. Yeah. It's so cool to think. Obviously, this is not the only part of the job, right? Being a scientist, studying animals, you're working in a lab, you're working with other people, you're writing papers, you're doing education. Like, there's there's all sorts of stuff to it. Mm-hmm. But that there is a part of this job where it is a team of people going out at night to get a hold of these six, eight, ten foot long super predators and being efficient and being nice to the animals at the time. (laughs) This is such a cool, like, if there's an image of, like, awesome scientists, (laughs) (laughs) that's a really fantastic, like, I'd watch a movie about that. Yes. (laughs) Like, I don't need it to be like, we're going out to hunt the monster. No, I... Just like a bunch of cool scientists going out to take genetic samples in the middle of the night and seeing all the eyes. That's a really cool vision of science. Absolutely. And I, I, I do love that part of the job. Don't get me wrong. I I guess I am an adrenaline junkie. I do <laughs> love working with these animals that pose a danger. I, I can't, you know, I know I keep talking about they're timid and shy and... Our species are not considered man-eaters, but of course 
there is the potential of danger, and I know that. These animals would bite or attack out of defense like any animal would. Mm-hmm. And they got more teeth than, than a lot of those other animals. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it just takes one bite from a crocodile to, to teach you a real lesson. Yes. And, you know, our species, that actually reminds me of a story. So we, with our surveys, and I feel comfortable with our population here in Belize, we will go in the water and swim after them. I have yeah. I have caught crocodiles while sw- while mid swimming, <laughs> or have the snare <laughs> pole, and there of course there poses a danger. And I obviously assess the area because you know I getting to ten foot. Oh, do I really want to get in the water with it? You know I, I'm yeah. smart <laughs> about stuff. It's mainly the smaller ones we go after, um, and. The other, <laughs> sorry, it's it's a crazy story. <laughs> so we do go in the water with them. And there was a time where I thought, this is it. I'm done. Yeah. And <laughs> it was on an island in, in Belize. And we know at that time people were feeding crocodiles in this particular area. And there was one particular male crocodile that was 11, 12 feet. And he had already nipped at people. And he had taken a couple of dogs, even with people around. He was just not scared of people whatsoever. Oh, man. And I had my master's student, Miriam, with me. And we were trying to capture crocodiles for her master's work at that time where we would capture them and anytime they vocalized, she was trying to record their vocalization because she was studying the vocalization or the acoustics of American crocodiles here in Belize. So we're on our boat, we get a shine near the mangrove and it looks like it's probably about a three, four foot crocodile. So, and where the mangrove is, there's this little cove and Miriam was like, you know, let's, let's go get it. You know, you go from that side, I'll go from that side. I was like, perfect. So we jump out of the boat And the boat can't go all the way into the cove because it gets really shallow. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we just told our boat captain, Tony, you know, just stay right there. We'll swim back to you in like five minutes. We'll let you guys know. And so we're going in the cove. We see the crocodile, but it escapes through this little back area. And I said, all right, Miriam, we're, there's no way we're going to get this crocodile. It's gone. It's gone. So she's like, all right, let's just get back on the boat. I turn around and maybe 20 feet in front of me, are these red eyes because of my headlamp. I see red eyes and they are inches apart and they are, it is just staring at us. And I said, Miriam, don't move. And she goes, why? I said, it's the big guy. It's the big guy. And he's staring right at us. And so she just slowly turns around, <laughs> you know, the old beep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriate. <laughs> I'm in, we're in waist deep water. This animal has the advantage absolutely if he wants to take us down. I am five foot four, 135 pounds. Miriam's, you know, five foot seven, probably at that point, 145, 150. And so we're just, we're a meal. We're a meal (laughs) to this animal. And I just told her, I was like, stay still. It's like, if we move, This animal knows we are scared and that's when he's going to approach. Do not move right now. If you're going to talk, do not be fearful. That animal will hear fear. Animals hear fear. Think about it. When you speak to a dog 
when you speak to a horse, you know, whatever domestic animals, they understand when you're mad. They understand when you're happy. They understand if you're going to do something to them. Crocodilians are smart. They have the intelligence of a five to seven year old. And so this animal, he will understand if we are afraid. And the other thing is you don't want to start slapping the water because that also means I'm scared prey or I'm injured and I'm Mm -hmm. an easy meal. So you never want to slap the water when you see a crocodilian. And so with that, I yell, but in a very calm tone to my boat captain. (laughs) Very confident and Mm -hmm. a very self-assured yell. Tony, the croc is here. Pull the boat over. And I told Miriam, I just told her, start walking slowly. Do not face your back to this animal. Because also when you face the back to a crocodilian or other predators, you're illustrating that you're submissive and you're afraid. So I told her, we have to continue to keep our front and look big. Look big right now. Like I might be small, but I am a big predator. Like I'm a big competitor as well. So we're just slowly walking. Again, our boat can't get into this cove because it's so shallow. So I just hear Tony and the other people on the boat just dragging the boat by just pulling on the mangrove. Even with that noise, that croc didn't move. And so I just told Miriam, slowly but slowly, just go. That croc starts turning his head towards us and starts slowly inching. And I'm thinking, you know what? I have the snare pole. If anything, if he opens up, I'll just jam it into his mouth. Like I, yeah. I'm just thinking different scenarios. So the boat gets close enough. We get close enough to the boat and Miriam, Miriam is the closest to the boat. And so I told Tony, I said, look, this animal is creeping closer and it's not moving on three. You Miriam jump and you pull up, pull up Miriam. So, you know, one, two, three, they pulled her up all that splashing the animal's going towards me. And I said, Tony, he's all, yeah, I don't know how I did it. I think it's, it was the only time that the Jedi within <laughs> used the force. And I somehow just jumped and I just feel Tony just grab me and just pull me on the boat. And that animal just, even with that big splash, didn't go down right away and then finally went away. And that was... Miriam and I just had this look and we were just, we just need a few moments. Like we, <laughs> that was the closest I've ever felt. Oh my gosh, this is it. I'm, I'm going to get killed by a crocodile right now. But the story about this was one, when you're going to work with an animal, you better know that animal's behavior. Mm-hmm. I knew we do not splash. We do not turn our back. You know, we face that animal because if we did any of those other, if we did the opposite of any of that, one of us probably would have been attacked. So I I mean, that's something I always recommend to people. If you're going to, whatever animal you're studying, understand that animal's behavior, especially if it's a, if it's a predator, in case you get in a sticky situation, you have an idea of possibly what you can do to prevent a negative interaction. And so I was very thankful I understood animal behavior, but also it also really pushed the fire in me or it really created the fire in me to educate people about the do's and don'ts living alongside crocodiles because that behavior of the crocodile 
That was not the bad behavior of a crocodile. That was the bad behavior of the humans that changed that crocodile's behavior by feeding it. I would yes. not have been in that situation if people just did not feed that crocodile. And so that that's when I really started stressing, do not feed the crocodiles, just because I had my life threatened. And, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, and so it was just, it's so, to me, it's been really important to really educate people about why we do not feed wildlife because sure you might get a cute selfie mm -hmm. you know you might get a cool story to go tell friends after a vacation but you just left a community in danger and yeah. so that's that's why it's not even just about education with people living beside the crocodiles it's also educating the people that come to visit the communities as well yeah well, and it's that that comes up in Florida all the time. And uh, when I worked at the aquarium there, that would be a regular conversation as to why why is it illegal to feed alligators? Because people would be like, what? Like, why why would I get arrested for giving them food? I have food. It has a mouth. Like, it, what? Where is the crime? It was often tricky to explain that it's not that you're that we're worried that you're going to do something wrong to the animal, but the lesson you're leaving behind for that animal is when you're hungry, approach people. And that equation you just wrote has a number of bad endings to it. Like that, that is just a, a recipe for the, the likelihood that someone or someone's pet is going to get, have a negative interaction with that animal. Even if it's not being especially aggressive, it's just you've given it the confidence to go toward other humans and... That's that just increases the statistics of something bad happening. Yeah. It's the same logic as when you're learning how to keep a pet. Yeah. You know, if you have a pet snake, for example, it is the typical logic. You don't just dangle the food in there yes. because then the snake knows when a hand comes in, that's food time. And that's how you get bitten by your pet snake. And like we said, uh, getting bitten by a, you know, a, your corn snake is not going to be a big deal, but getting bitten by an alligator. Yep. Like even if the alligator's only half trying, that's still, that that's a lot of bite. Well, and the other thing that I always emphasize with that is that, that you're putting someone else in danger, but you're also signing the death warrant of that animal. If that animal kills a kid, that animal's dying. Yes. If that animal just bites, you know, someone majorly, that animal's probably going to be put down for doing nothing wrong. So that's interesting what you just said. And it just reminded me of a project that we're currently doing in Northern Belize. And it's because of what you just said. In the sense, someone was feeding a crocodile in New River Belize, which is in Northern Belize. And there was a video of these kids walking and this crocodile just comes and takes the kid's puppy. And yeah. that... That's not normal. And then we found out that that animal was being fed. And then, of course, Forest Department calls us and says, can you please remove this animal from this area? Because it's it's habituated. And if you can't, like at this point, you can keep it as an educational animal or euthanize it. Yeah. So we go up there. Now, here's the interesting twist. And we start going to some really interesting science. So in this area, let's do a little prequel. In this area, so that <laughs> we caught this crocodile September 2018. And right before that, we started getting all these messages from people 
along that live alongside the river, we are seeing white crocodiles. Our crocodiles are turning pinkish. We're seeing more lethargic crocodiles. And this is, people have lived alongside the crocodiles in this area for a long time. There's a lot of tourism around the crocodiles. So seeing these animals die, uh, that is going to affect our economy. And then also with that is a lot of people started to see, along with these white crocodiles, fish dying. And sometimes the river smelled. And we were just thinking, I mean, we're not, you know, we're, we're not... Um, scientists in regards of thoroughly investigating an ecosystem, you know, we're more just the wildlife biologists. And so we wanted to go up to New River to catch crocodiles there to see what was going on. And so then this, this attack happened on this puppy and, you know, forest department asking us to go capture the animal. So I was like, all right, the timing's good. Let's try to do a capture survey when we capture this animal. So I had, I had to watch a video over and over of a crocodile taking somebody's dog, which broke my heart because I love dogs, but I understood what <laughs> was happening just to identify scars on it because mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that we caught the right animal. And I did notice it had these white blotches on it. And so later, um, later that night after, or when we got, when we got to New River, we did a drone survey and we found the crocodile. Then we went out on the boat and we captured that animal. When I captured this seven foot Morlets crocodile, when you catch a crocodile, they fight. Yeah. And Morlets crocodiles, they are fighters. This animal went limp immediately. And I thought, Weird. did I did I just kill it? Did I like break the neck? How do I break the neck of a crocodile with a little <laughs> noose? Like I was <laughs> what what's going on? We bring it on land, it doesn't move. Forest department comes. Is that animal dead? I don't think so. You know, we put a mirror on the nose just to see respiration and stuff. And it just was absolutely limp, but it had these white blotches. Parts of the skin were just sloughing off. What is going on? And in my head, I knew I was like, there's some type of pollution in the water. You know, they're talking about smell coming from the river. They're talking about dead fish. There's something in the water that's obviously affecting the crocodiles. So We take this animal back down south and I'm going to rehab it back to health and it's going to end up being one of our crocodile ambassadors at the CRC. After coming to us, it died in two weeks. When we did the necropsy, I can send you all photos in case you want to put it up anywhere. Its innards were all mush. Whoa. Hours after it died. It looked like it had been rotting in the sun for days. I showed pictures of what this crocodile looked like when we first opened it. And all the croc vets that I know internationally have said, I have never seen that. And it literally like all the muscles were mush. There was a black tar in the stomach. The, the intestine, the intestinal lining was sloughing off. The kidneys were just falling apart in my hands. And the liver was definitely enlarged and it almost looked chalky. I mean, this was just a pure sign of pollution affecting this animal. And this animal had been slowly dying over months. 
A few months later, we got another large crocodile from this area. Same thing. It died. I mean, just mush inside, kidneys falling through my hands. And again, they all have this white tint to their skin. So again, Game of Thrones, I, I started calling them White Walkers. <laughs> they were alive, but really they were dead. Like they were in this in-between. And so it, the name totally catched on. Um, the news media used it, the White Walkers of Belize. <laughs> That'll do it. Forest Department. Oh, you know, what's going on with the White Walkers in New River? I, it's because it's it was just very eerie and creepy. And government right away saw the importance. Like, if this is happening to an animal that has one of the strongest immune systems in the world, mm-hmm. how is this going to affect the rest of the wildlife that depends on the river, how is this going to affect communities? And it was right after the second crocodile, uh, the pollution in the river got so bad and the smell, it started to make people sick. And there was a couple of times I had to wear mask. I had to wear a mask because the smell coming from the river was making me so sick. And wow. so we have this project now, Save the New River, where it's a it's a long term monitoring project, but the um, it looks like what is affecting the river the cause of the White Walkers the pollution it does look like there's some type of effluent coming from a sugar factory so whatever they are dumping into the river is causing some issues in the river health but when you look further upstream there's a lot of agriculture. So we know that there are some agrochemicals that are being utilized in Belize that have been banned in Belize, even in the United States since the 70s, but somehow mm. they're here and being utilized. Mm-hmm. At this moment, we're thinking it's this cocktail of agrochemicals and effluent from the sugar factory that is causing the pollution in New River that is obviously having this significant negative impact with not just the crocodiles but various wildlife throughout the river system and you were led there because a croc grabbed a dog (laughs) and this all happened i mean you know it's it it's an interesting story we went there because yeah a croc grabbed a dog because someone had habituated the croc through direct feeding And I'm sure we would have discovered the issue, but the issue came to light a lot quicker to us because someone habituated an animal. Yeah. I'm not saying that was a good thing (laughs) because it's not a good thing. Right. (laughs) But um, if it wasn't for this one croc, I mean, it could have, it might have been another year or two before we figured what was going on with New River. And... The thing is, when we published what we found in this crocodile, the community around New River, the communities around New River, obviously were in an uproar of what is going on. Yeah. Yeah. Asking government, asking the local farmers as well as the industry, this is not normal. What is going on? Do something about it. And Mm -hmm. so the timing, because of our research... I know that there was a little bit of regulations and I know the sugar factory started to regulate a little bit on what was going 
on at the factory. So, you know, it's it was a good thing that we responded to that particular croc attack on the dog, because if we didn't find out any later, who knows what could have happened? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Marissa, I get the impression that we could do an episode for eight hours just having you tell us stories yeah. from your experience and These your research. Fantastic. Uh, I do want to bring up one, and we can we can mention this briefly because when I was learning about you, so so Will and I wanted to have a croc guest for croc month, and we've got a snake guest for July for snake month. And so I was doing some background and I found the Crocodilian Research Co- Coalition. And I learned about your research and I, and I, I read some uh, about what you've done. And I, here is a piece of information I picked up that I have intentionally kept from Will until this moment on the recording. Uh, I learned that you also named a croc after a Star Wars character. Ah, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> TK421? <gasps> awesome! <laughs> I saw that. I was. It was in. A, I think it was on Vice. It was an article about you, and it might have been Miriam. It was a, another a person. Yes, you worked yes, with. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it mentioned that, and I went, "Great! I'm not going to tell yes. Will about this." Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> <laughs> so we put a satellite tracker. We put the first iridium satellite tracker. Um, on an American croc, not only in Belize, but also in the region, to look at the dispersal patterns of crocodiles, because that information can also help with conservation efforts, right? So we were trying to name this animal, and I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and satellite (laughs) tracking, that has been a project I've been wanting to do for years, but I just didn't have the funding, and I finally received funding because... This particular crocodile was also the first crocodile to go through our rehabilitation program. So we use uh, negative reinforcement and positive punishment to get habituated crocodiles to become wild crocodiles again. Gotcha. This was an eight foot male that was in an area that had been fed. And so he graduated after six or seven months. He did not show up when people are around anymore. He was timid. He was shy. And so, of course, we wanted to make sure that our program actually worked because prior to that, if an animal was habituated, it was thrown in a facility or it was euthanized. We were Mm -hmm. trying to give crocodiles another chance, and this particular method had proven successful with tigers in India, polar bears in Canada, I believe they have also used it with mountain lions in Colorado. So with other predators as well. Oh, wow. So I wanted to try it with crocodilians. And I was approached by a colleague of mine, Flavio Morrissey, who is the god. He's Flavio Morrissey is the croc whisperer. Uh, He absolutely (laughs) understands their behavior. And so we worked on this program together, put a satellite tracker on this croc. And what are we going to name this croc? And again, I wanted to give it a Star Wars name and I'm going through it all. (laughs) And then Flavio, it was Flavio. He goes, well, if you guys can't really think of a name, maybe just give him a number. And all of a sudden, (laughs) oh my gosh, TK421, where are you? Right? Why aren't you at your post? Because satellite trackers, TK421, where are you? Right? We want to know where TK421 is. So we settled on TK421. We do have t-shirts on sale. (laughs) On our CRC website for TK421. Yeah. 
Oh, I might be getting a t-shirt. We might have to put a link in the episode description. It's so funny. The number of times when I was trying, I I was learning about uh, Marissa, about you as a potential guest. And the number of times that I saw something and went, oh, this is perfect for (laughs) for somebody to talk about Crocs with with us and Will. (laughs) The Star Wars thing. The, the hand towel thing, yep, yep. which I'm not even going to explain for our listeners. You'll just have to wonder about what that means. <laughs> it's been great. Marissa, it has been a, a utter delight talking to you about this and, and hearing about your conservation work. Is there anything you wanted to... Um, a million things. Right. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> this has just been so... I, I, I'm sure I could talk your ear off just asking question after question because it's it's... I'm always fascinated to get to hear from people who work with Crocs because, as you said, they're they're intelligent and their behavior is very complex. So I, I've always loved these animals, but reading about them in books always felt like just just the shallowest of introduction to how they actually behave. It was the big reason I wanted to get a job in an aquarium and interact with live animals and talk with people who cared for live animals and really get to know of like, all right, we have these two gators. Tell me about them individually. Like what are their personalities and getting that perspective. So it's, it, I, I eat that up. I eat those stories up and just love getting that information. It's always fascinating to me because I've not gotten much hands on. I've held, I've held little ones. (laughs) (laughs) So we got to take a trip down to Belize. Yeah. And meet all these cool crocs <laughs> from a safe distance. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Every croc ha- has its own individual personality. And you obviously see it with our captive animals, especially during their target training sessions. And, you know, some days they're really great. And other days they're like, oh, I'm not going to work for my food. Just just throw it at me. You know, yeah, and then there's this same. little battle between us. <laughs> and, you know, then they're mopey for a week or two because I wouldn't give them their food because they didn't work for it. Sounds like having kids, right? Yeah, dealing yeah. with with just a bunch of like like you said, five to seven year olds. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they they bite and they right. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Before we officially wrap up, Marissa, is there anything else you'd like to say to on the note of Crocs, on the note of Croc conservation for our listeners? Any any final message? Any wrap up ideas to get in people's minds? I have so much to say. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I guess one way to answer that question is if you go down to the episode description, we will have links to the CRC website. Uh, we can have links to your, uh, if you're on social media, we can get a bunch of links from you. So if people want to learn more from you, uh, that way you don't have to worry about saying all the things. <laughs> dig into it themselves. I, I rarely am speechless. And that actually made me speechless. I'm like, I have so much more to say. <laughs> right? <laughs> I know. Like I said, if we could do this for eight hours, uh, it would be great. We would fill it easily. <laughs> yeah, I feel, you know, I definitely threw out some interesting conservation stories, a little bit about the research. But for those that want to find out more, they can definitely head to the CRC social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. We are on TikTok. I did say Instagram already. And then I have my own. I'm very active on Twitter and Instagram as well. And so that's those are other avenues in which you can get in contact with me. I'm more than happy to answer any type of crocodilian 
question that you may have, and especially for those that are aspiring young scientists, you need some advice, you need possible connections in the crocodilian world, do not hesitate to contact me. I love mentoring and fostering the next generation of scientists. So please contact me if you have any questions about being the world of conservation or science. And if you really want to sink your teeth into conservation, we have internship opportunities, virtual and on-site, as well as you can, if you're, in a, if you're a graduate student and you want to do some crocodile work or even just work in herpifauna, please contact us. We do also assist graduate students with their particular research projects. That's fantastic. That's awesome. so great. Yes. I have one last question before we officially wrap up. Marissa, do you have a favorite species of crocodilian? I love the American crocodile. It's probably because <laughs> I have been working with it for over a decade. And they're just they're just so chill and peaceful. Mm-hmm. Like they're so powerful. They are one of the larger species, but they're just like, I mean, just the Bob Marley music is always in the background, man. and i just i i don't know what it is like i just and they'll they'll surf the waves because you know they do transverse and sea so they're just they're a chill species but if i had to say another species cuban crocs yes they got those horns like a a dragon that's pretty cool they jump pretty high too yeah they're so mobile yeah, they're so mole. I, I do love the Cuban Crocs, and they're they're very pretty. They're very pretty. And they just kind of have like a bad-to-the-bone attitude, which I kind of like. So it's almost <laughs> like, you know, the extremes. But, I, I mean, the American Croc has my heart. I I appreciate you saying that they're chill because that was a point I would – because we'd get people at the aquarium who would move to Florida and would have that moment of like, hey, so how how worried should we be now that we're sharing a state with – giant reptiles and i always loved explaining them like all right well you know here's the rundown on you know they because they'd be like Yo, how do i tell a crocodile from an alligator and i'd give them all the stuff and i'd be like uh you're in a cool situation where you're in the only place in the world where you have to worry about distinguishing that uh nowhere else do you have to worry about telling a croc from a alligator because that's it only happens here and b the two species we have two chill lazy species <laughs> these are not species that want to eat people. These are not species that are regularly attacking people. You have to do something majorly wrong to to get in trouble with an American alligator or American crocodile. So th- you you came to the right place to get introduced to living alongside crocodiles. first croc neighbors. Yes, yes. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Marissa, for joining us for this episode. We hope our listeners have learned a ton. We hope that you have all sorts of fun new thoughts about crocs if you want to hear more if you want to learn more check those links in the description go pester dr tayez on social media (laughs) please do please do (laughs) and make sure you check out all of our other croc month stuff that we've been doing we've got stuff on social media we've got stuff on discord and then of course keep your ears out because next month we will be doing an episode just like this for snakes oh and also actually before we wrap up i should mention We chose June and July for Crocs and Snake Month because of World Croc Day and World Snake Day. And I guess this is one last, last, last thing for you. (laughs) Uh, Marissa, you mentioned that you are involved in World Croc Day. Yes, I was actually one of the founders of World Croc Day several years ago. So uh, Belize was one of the 
Tbilisi Zoo was one of the first places internationally to celebrate World Croc Day. And we will be celebrating it at the zoo again this coming year. That's so cool. That's so cool. And that's one of those. I did not know that. (laughs) I didn't know that when we reached out to you. (laughs) You mentioned it when we first met you. And I was like, man, this we picked really the perfect person for our Crocs episode. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you one more time. Uh, Thank you so much. We hope everybody has a happy Croc month. And we'll see you uh, for more stuff coming up soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.